About midway through the ministry of Jesus, there was an episode where a centurion who was a Roman soldier came to Jesus and he had a servant that was sick in his house that was very precious to him. And he had heard of Jesus and his ability to heal and the things that he was doing. And so he came to Jesus to request that he would help the sickness that the servant was experiencing and that he would heal him. And so as the centurion came and gave his request, some of the people that were around Jesus said to him, this is a good man. He's done great things for our nation. He's built us a synagogue and he's worthy of the thing that he's asked. And so Jesus obliged and said that he would help this man. And the man said, listen, I I know you can help, but I'm not worthy that you should come into my house. But I know that if you only speak the word, my servant will be healed. And then he gave to Jesus his rationale as to why he knew that would work. And he said this. He said, I am a man who's under authority. And I say to my servant, to this one go and he goes, and to another one come and he comes. And I know that if you would only speak the word, that my servant would be healed. And Jesus looked at the man hearing those words and his reply to him was, I have not seen such great faith, not even amongst the Israelites, the Jews to whom I've been sent and to those that have the word of God. And that's kind of a puzzling interaction as we hear of it right now, sometimes when we read it in the Bible, to try to understand the dynamics of what's going on in that interchange. What does the authority that the centurion is under and his ability to speak to a servant and tell him to go and come, what does that have to do with Jesus' authority to just speak a word of healing over the servant? And there's been many a saint through the ages that has read that passage and said, I hear the words, I understand the language, but I don't quite get the concept. And why does Jesus marvel so greatly at the faith of that man Because of what he said and exalted above the faith even of the Israelites. Because basically what that man was saying to Jesus in his declaration and his profession of faith is he was saying, I understand that this whole universe operates on the principle of authority and submission. And he says, because I, a centurion, a captain over a hundred men, bow the knee to Caesar, who is the emperor of the entire empire, because I bow the knee in submission to Caesar, I have authority over my hundred men and they do what I say. My authority rests in my submission. And so I know who you are, son of God. And I know that you bow your knee to your father, which is in heaven. And because you're under his authority, that means that you have authority that even your very word is powerful enough to heal my sick servant at home. Because the word of the Father can speak creation into existence. And if that's the authority that you bow to, then that's the authority that you carry and thus just speak and my servant will be healed. And Jesus got the message that this man was declaring to him in faith, I know who you are. And Jesus said, because of that, your servant shall be healed. The principle that's laid out for us there is that everything in the world, everything in the universe, and especially everything in God's kingdom, works on this principle of authority and submission. Our authority in our lives Wherever we are, whether our authority is boss or parent or team leader or to whatever degree we have authority or people look up to us for instruction, the strength of that authority is contingent upon the strength of our submission. Everyone in this universe or in this world has both authority and is called to submission. But the strength of our authority can't go beyond the bowing of our submission. And so it is in the body of Christ. God the Father is the head over all. He has placed all things in the hand of the Son. Every Christian, of course, we bow the knee to Him. Every knee will bow and tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. 
But even in the church or in the kingdom of God, there is a rank and file of those whom God has called and those whom he uses for his purposes. And we are all called to take our place in the body of Christ where he has placed us. And we are all under the authority of those that are over us. And we all have authority from God to those who are under us. But authority and submission go hand in hand. So as Peter now closes out his letter to the Christians in his age, he gives a word to two groups of people. Number one, to the elders, to those that have a little bit more authority, not all authority, but a little bit more authority in the body of Christ, in the kingdom of God. And then he speaks to the younger or to the newer believers that are under the authority of the elders that are over them. And and he speaks a word now to both groups of people and he writes it down and it applies to every single one of us in our lives, not just those of us that are involved in spiritual ministry, but to every one of us that have a place of authority in this life, whether we're a parent, a father, a mother, or anything else, any other area, these truths apply to us. And so Peter writes here in the close of his epistle, and he begins with the elders. He says in verse 1, he says, The elders which are among you I exhort. Now, the word elder in the New Testament is synonymous or used interchangeably with the words bishop and pastor. So if you read elder, bishop, or pastor, they're all speaking about the same person or the same office in the New Testament. The elder or the word elder speaks of the man, that he's to be one who is mature, one who is seasoned, one who is called, one who's been raised up by God to occupy the position, and he bears the fruit and character of Christ in order to represent him in that position rightly. So the elder is the man. Bishop speaks of the office, that is the title or the invisible badge, if you would, that is given to him, the office of a bishop, Paul calls it in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And so bishop speaks of the office and pastor speaks of the method. The word pastor just literally means shepherd and an elder or a bishop is called to lead in the same way that a shepherd tends to a flock. And so the word pastor or the title of pastor implies the method whereby an elder is to lead in the body of Christ. So elder, bishop, pastor, all speaking of the same man. And Peter addresses them now and he says, the elders which are among you, I exhort. And the word exhort, it's an interesting word in the Greek. The word is parakaleo. And I don't share all the Greek words, but I share some of them because some of them you begin to recognize some of the common things. The word para, where we get the word parallel, and kaleo is where we get the word helper or teacher. And so basically what Peter is saying is that I want to come alongside, parallel with you, and I want to help you or I want to instruct you. And so as Peter is talking now to the elders, he's not seeking to lord over them or exercise authority commanding them, but rather he's coming in a spirit of sympathy, understanding who they are. And he says, I want to give you some words that will help you in your calling, in the authority or the position that God has called you unto. So unto the elders which are among you, I exhort, I come alongside to help or to teach. And then he gives his credentials. He says, who, speaking of himself, am also an elder. And so Peter says, I am one of you. I'm a little bit more mature, a little bit more seasoned. I probably have a little bit more experience. I've seen a few things that maybe you haven't seen and that I've walked with the Son of God. I know a few things, having been used in the way and the capacity that I have. And so I am one of you, and so I can speak into your lives because I share a common bond and a common call with you. And so he says, my first credential is that I am one of you. I have the experience. And then the second credential that's given, he says, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. So a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Now, the idea behind this is not so much 
that he was one who watched while Jesus suffered and endured the cross. That goes without saying. Everybody knew who Peter was and that he was there and that he saw and witnessed and that he was there in the garden of Gethsemane and all of that. That's not the idea what he's saying. Well, this is what gives me the authority to do this is that I saw Jesus Christ. The word witness that he uses is the Greek word martyrus. That's where we get the English word martyr. And what do we know a martyr to be? It's someone who has suffered persecution or death because of their faith or because of their profession. And what Peter is saying here is he calls himself a witness to the sufferings of Christ. He's saying, I have been a partaker of common sufferings as Jesus went through them. I've been through a thing or two of difficulty. And, and the, 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 the seat or the symbol of my authority is not the title that I have or even the fact that I'm an elder. But he says, I know the pressures, the persecutions, and the difficulties of the calling that you guys there out in the field are bearing up under. I know what it's like. I'm a witness to the sufferings of Christ. All throughout this epistle, the four chapters preceding this one that we're in right now, he has called the church to recognize like, hey, the reason why we suffer is because we're going through the common sufferings that he also has endured. And what Peter is saying here is that I am not a stranger to the sufferings that accompany the Christian life. I have been through every one of them. I've faced every temptation, every trial, every difficulty, every bit of persecution, every bit of rejection. I know what it's like to go through every pain that you as a leader, in whatever capacity you lead, feel. I know what that feels like. I'm a witness to the sufferings of Christ. But he doesn't stop there. He says, and also the, of the glory, or a witness, or a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Peter says, my outlook concerning the sufferings and the trials that I go through and have gone through and continue to go through in my life is not one of despair, not one of sorrow or complaining or bitterness. And my coming alongside of you is not to say, there, there now, brother, but rather I also understand that the purpose of the sufferings and the difficulties that I've gone through and that we go through, every one of us, is because of the glory that that suffering is working for us on the other side that we can't see yet. The Apostle Paul said to the Roman church in chapter 8, that glorious chapter, he said these words concerning our experience and our sharing in his sufferings. He said that I perceive or reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. That's Romans chapter 8, verse 18. Think about those words. That the sufferings of this present time aren't worthy to be even compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. In other words, the sufferings that we're enduring are working something in us, and our perspective in those things is to understand that God has a very specific intent and purpose in those things, both for our lives here now on earth, and also for our future in eternity and what is yet to come. And so Peter says, I'm a, a witness, a partaker of the sufferings, but I am also a witness to you that what you're going through and the difficulty that it is in your life right now, that it's worth it, that you will be a partaker of the glory that is to come. And so he calls them to his side. He says, I'm here to help. I know what you're going through. I've suffered. It's all for a cause. And now what he gives to them by way of instruction as he gives to them their job description. And I'm so thankful for the simplicity. He gives them basically two words of instruction concerning their call and their role in the body of Christ, these elders. He begins in verse 2. He says, first of all, feed the flock of God which is among you. Feed the flock of God which is among you. The first function that Peter lays out in the ministry of an elder or a bishop of a pastor is that they are to feed the sheep that God has entrusted to their care. Now, we see this illustration of God likening his people unto sheep all throughout the Bible, from Genesis all the way through until Revelation. And there's so much a likeness between the human mind and the Christian mindset and that of a sheep. 
But the greatest need that any sheep has is that that sheep needs to eat. And it's the responsibility of the shepherd of the sheep to part, uh, to play a part in making that happen. So you say, well, what does that mean? Does that mean that the, the office of the elder is to host a potluck every week and, you, you know, and make sure that there's plenty of food? We all know that Christians like to, to eat and so make sure that at every meeting there's a meal. No, 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 no. The idea is, in the spiritual sense, the food that the shepherd feeds the sheep is the word of God. Jesus said that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. In Hebrews chapter 5, the word, again, is likened unto spiritual meat or food that is strong, that nourishes us up, that develops our spiritual senses so that we can be perfect and mature. Another illustration that the Bible gives concerning the word of God is that of manna or bread. The manna that fell upon the ground in the Old Testament that the people would eat day by day in order to sustain themselves. And the bread of God that comes down from heaven and gives life unto the world. And so the word of God is the food that the shepherd is to give to the people. And when Peter says, feed the flock of God which is among you, he's saying, give to the people. Give to my people, to God's people, the truth of God's word. That's the most important function that an elder or a shepherd or a leader has in the body of Christ. On the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was poured out and the church was first formed, it tells us in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, that the early Christians gave themselves to, and the first thing on the list is the apostles' doctrine or the apostles' teaching is that they understood the importance of the word of God and giving it to the people. In Acts chapter 6, when the church had grown and there were more needs that were presented, more practical needs, things aside from just being taught, and the apostles were being pulled away from the teaching ministry in order to take care of the administration needs of the body, Peter looked at, at it and he saw what was happening. And he looked at the people in the church in that day and he saw that the greatest danger to subvert the church from her purpose was before him. And he said these words by wisdom. He said that it is not reason that we should leave the word of God in order to serve tables. So look you out seven men of honest report that that we might appoint over this business, but we will give ourselves to the word of God and to prayer. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, the last words of Paul to, to, to the young Timothy that was coming up underneath him, his charge, his final charge to him, is he said, preach the word. Be instant, in season and out of season. Rebuke, exhort, correct with all long-suffering and doctrine. That we're to preach the word of God. John chapter 17, verse 17 The final prayer that Jesus prayed before ascending into heaven in the birth of the church. His prayer to the Father for you and me, his people, is he said, sanctify them. That means seal, protect, enclose. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. He doesn't say that your word contains truth or that your word tells the truth. He says your word is truth. That this Bible that you and I have in our hands, the words that the Bible says are inspired and breathed by God, that these things are the bridge that we have that connects us to another world. And God has given us his word as a means whereby we might know himself, a means whereby our faith might be built up. A means whereby our spiritual senses are exercised. Where what God has called us to be can unfold in all of the spiritual DNA that makes us what we are as an expression of himself. That those things can be built up and matured. It's 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 the, 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 the food that causes us to bear fruit unto his name. Everything that will make us and is what we're supposed to be is contained within the truth of the word of God. And so Jesus has sanctified them by your truth. Your word is truth. There's no other way that we can know who God is apart from his word. And his word supplies power for us. And everything in it is a promise and is empowered by God to produce in in our lives the things that, that he says. Isaiah chapter 55 verses 9 and 10. God says, as the rain and as the snow come down from heaven, 
and water the earth and give bread to the eater and seed to the sower, God says, so shall my word be that goes forth out of my mouth. It will not return unto me void, but it will accomplish what I please, and it will prosper in the thing whereunto I sent it. What that means is this, is that if God says it, then that means he has power to perform it, no matter how how difficult it is or how impossible it is on our end of things to produce. And so the importance of the word of God and the primary main function of an elder, bishop, or pastor in the body of Christ is to feed The church, the word of God, all of it, from Genesis to Revelation, line upon line, verse by verse, precept by precept, the entire Bible, because all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for instruction in righteousness, that the man or woman of God might be thorough and complete, perfected, lacking nothing. And so we need the word of God. And the job of our pastors, the job of those that hold the spiritual baton and hold the searchlight and lead the way, the primary function of those people is to uphold the word of God. That is our authority. That is the food that causes a Christian to grow. And so he tells them to feed the flock of God. The second function that he gives to them is he tells them there right after, he says then, taking the oversight thereof. And the idea behind that is that the the, the secondary calling, or you could make them equal if you want to, is that the, the office of the elder is to tend to the flock. Now I find it interesting that when when Pete remember when Peter denied the Lord? And and Jesus met with him personally on the shores of Galilee and restored him? And Jesus asked the question three times. He said, Peter, do you love me? And Peter said, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to Peter, first of all, he said, Then feed my sheep. And then he asked the question a second time. He said, Peter, do you love me? Peter said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And then Jesus said, tend my flock. And so the very instruction that Jesus gave to Peter, Peter now hands off to the elders in the generation coming up behind him. He says, feed and tend. Well, the question is, well, what does it mean for an elder or a pastor to tend the flock or to take the oversight of the flock? Well, it means a couple of things. First and foremost, the elder or the pastor is to tend to the condition of his own spiritual state. That's probably the most important thing that a pastor has to tend to, is his own spiritual condition. Is that he doesn't for one minute begin to think that he is outside of or above being a sheep himself. And here's why that's important. Because he is called to lead by example. In verse 3, he's going to say that that's the method whereby we lead. It's by example. And that means that the eyes of those that are hearing from us, that we're tending, are looking at us to be an example or a pattern for what it is that they're becoming. And so if a pastor isn't looking after his own heart and he isn't growing closer to the Lord, if he isn't feeding on the word of God, if he isn't serving in in a capacity or bearing fruit in his life, if he isn't growing in holiness, if he isn't walking the narrow way that leads to life and keeping himself free from sin, then how is it a reasonable thing that he would expect to see those things in the people that are looking at his life and following him? There's a principle in God's order, and that is that things reproduce after like kind. And that means that a tree isn't going to give birth to a dog. It's going to give birth according to what it is. And that's the way God has made things. And this is a spiritual sowing of seed. It's a spiritual work that's happening right now. And no matter how good of a teacher or a pattern I appear to be in what I say or what you see from there, if I'm not living those things out in my life, it's foolish for me to think that it's going to happen in you. As I would pray for the people that come here on Wednesday nights or on Sunday mornings, and I would pray and say, God, build up in them a hunger for the Word of God. If I don't have a hunger for the Word of God, I can't pray that for you. Or at least I can't expect God to do it. God, let them walk the narrow way that leads to life, being set free from sin and loving righteousness and holiness. That has to be right in my life. And so the very first and foremost thing that the elder must tend to is his own heart and spiritual condition. Now apply that to your own place. Parent, raising little ones, grandparent, looking at two generations whose eyes are on you, 
It's unreasonable for us to think that those that are to model after us and come up after us, that they will exceed beyond us. I saw a plaque very early in my Christian life. It said that our children, our kids, and those that follow us in our ministry, that they will rise as high as our lowest standard. Meaning that if I set the bar here, it isn't reasonable for me to expect that those coming up under me will rise any higher than my lowest. And so it's important to me that I be looking after the condition of my own spirit and my own spiritual walk. Another thing that the shepherd is to tend after or tend to in his taking leadership in the body of Christ is that he must understand uh, what it means to, 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 to look out for the security of the fold. He has to be mature enough to know the hidden dangers that can befall the church or befall a Christian in their lives that he might see those things coming and give proper warning. Paul would say to the Ephesian elders, I have taught and warned you by the space of three and a half years, even with tears. And so we must know the hidden dangers. Third is the overall state of the health of the flock. We must know what healthy Christians look like. Have wisdom to know when to pray for an issue that we see. When to speak into someone's life. When to wait and trust God to do things. We have to know how to recognize symptoms and know what to do with spiritual conditions. We have to know where the wolves are. What they do and how they operate. It means to tend the flock, to oversee it for the spiritual well-being of the people that you are feeding. And so Peter says these are the primary functions of the elders. They're to feed and they are to tend the flock of God. And so he says that you're to take the oversight thereof. And now he gets into motive. What's the proper motive for an elder to be serving or for a pastor to be serving? He starts with the negative. What's not to be our motive? He says, first of all, not by constraint. Constraint means that you're doing it because somebody else put it upon you to do it. We see this so often when a pastor will raise up a son or a couple of sons. And the expectation will be placed upon them that just because their dad is a pastor and had a calling that they must also then follow in his footsteps. Or sometimes it happens that a new believer kind of catches on to the things of God and they're encouraged into a path of ministry when the calling and the desire isn't really there. And Peter says that the reason why a person should be in ministry should never be because someone else put it on them to do it. Ministry, service in the body of Christ, is always a calling And the first evidence of that calling is that there is an intense and unquenchable desire for the work. Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, on the same subject, he said, If any man desires the office of a bishop, he desires a good work. And so the first evidence of a calling is that there's actually a desire, not a constraint that's being put upon it for someone else. And it takes time for that calling to develop and to unfold, but it's a desire. I know for myself, from the very beginning, when God opened my eyes and I saw the reality and the truth of his word, I couldn't hold it back. I I couldn't wait when I would discover a new truth or see Jesus in some new light or new uh, revealed way that's before in the Bible for me as a new believer. I couldn't wait to call my Christian friends. And to tell them about the things that that I was learning. I was a teacher from the time I was wet behind the ears spiritually. I couldn't help it. It was just something that was in me. I always was driven to just give out the mysteries of God as I learned them and as I saw them. Whether I heard them from others or saw them for myself. It was a desire that was in me. Now at the same time, when someone asked me, they said, Hey, do you want to go out street witnessing and talk to unbelievers about Jesus? The hair on the back of my neck stood up. Everything in me clinched up. I got really nervous and clammy. And I said, you want me to do what? Talk to an unbeliever? What would I say? Now, you said, you want to talk to that person, that Christian, and, and, and explain to them some, oh, yeah, I know exactly what to say. That's easy for me. That's my calling. So don't let anybody put a calling on you that God hasn't put on you. If it's a calling, then it will be accompanied by an intense desire and a drive from within to do the thing that God has called you to do. And so uh, it's not to be by constraint. Second of all, he says, not for filthy lucre, or it's not to be for money. 
The idea is that the motive for someone to get into the ministry is never to be as a means to get rich. Now, money is a consequence of life. And it stands to reason that someone who's called into that service will be provided for according to the service that they render. That's of God. That's in the Bible. But the ministry is not a means whereby God has chosen to make people rich. And woe be unto the person who is motivated and driven in the ministry in order to obtain financial or carnal things. You would be better off becoming a drug dealer or a bank robber or a professional gambler than to use the body of Christ, the mysteries of God, and the things of his church in order to enrich yourself. That is not to be a motive. It's an invalid motive for someone to lead in the body of Christ. It's not to be for lucre's sake. The third reason we're not to serve is that we're not to lord it over, as he says then in verse 3, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but rather as examples over the flock. The third reason that someone is not to lead is as as because of a hunger for power. There are some people in this world that have a drive and a desire to just rule over others. And many have discovered that the church is a platform and a means whereby they can exercise that desire and receive the gratification that they're seeking to extract from that. And it's not to be the way it is. Two times in the book of Revelation, when Jesus was talking to the churches, he said that he hates, he abhors. Think about the power of God saying that he hates something that he hates the doctrine, that is the teaching or belief system, and the deeds, the things that are done, by the Nicolaitans. You say, who in the world were the Nicolaitans? It's a Greek word that means niko, which means victory or dominating, and laity is the people. So it means to dominate or to rule over the people. And Jesus said, I hate the beliefs and the deeds of those that look at my people that way as a means of ruling over them. Peter says that is not to be the motive or the reason why someone leads in the body of Christ. Rather, we're to be examples unto the flock. We're to be of the mind frame, elders are, that we are just sheep that have been given a privilege to be stewards over the mysteries of God That as we follow him, we can look at people and say, follow me as I follow Christ. I'm a model, perhaps, and a guide, but I am not Jesus, nor Messiah, nor the answer to your questions, nor the one that can save your soul. I'm a pastor, not the master. And so I'm to be an example, not a Lord over uh, the needs of the church. So then, what is to be the motive? If it's not to be constrained, it's not to be money, and it's not to be power, then what is the valid reason why I would serve in the body of Christ? What's the positive? Peter gives two words. He says, first of all, he uses the word ready, or being of a ready mind, there at the end of verse 2. And then he uses the word willingly in the middle of verse 2. And so the two positive qualifications, or motives rather, reasons why I would serve in this capacity, are first of all because I'm ready. God goes to painstaking lengths in order to prepare his servants for the work of the ministry. God makes sure that his servants are a right representation of himself. Back up in verse 1, when Peter said that I'm a witness to the sufferings of Christ, that's what he was alluding to. He's saying, listen, I know what it means to be refined to the point of usefulness. I know what it means to be broken and brought to the point where there's nothing left of Peter and that everything I am lives and breathes for the glory of Jesus Christ. And I understand the pain that it takes to bring a man or a woman to that place where that's where they, what they live for and that's what they breathe for. And in order for a person to be made ready unto the ministry, it requires a great crushing and a great breaking at the hand of God. You will not find one person that bears good fruit for God in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation or even those in history that we can read of that bore fruit for God that were not intensely broken and brought through deep trials of suffering in their preparation 
so that God can make them ready and able to rightly represent his person to a lost and dying world. There is an incredible expense attached to this calling. And anyone who thinks that there's not or who gets into it thinking that there's not or that it's easy in some way is getting into it not having a clue what it is that they're thinking about or what they're talking about. Now, if a person can come to the end of that line of preparation, come through the sufferings and the trials and the difficulties that bring them to that point of being ready for that calling, and if they're still willing, then that's the sign of a true call of God. There are many people that are willing to lead in the body of Christ, but they're not ready. They haven't been broken. They haven't been tested. They haven't been prepared. There's a lot of people that are ready. They've been tested and they've been prepared, but they're no longer willing because they've counted the cost and they know what it is. But when a person is both ready, fully prepared, and still willing, then what that means is that the only motive that's left in them to do what they're doing is the glory of God out of a love for Jesus Christ. Why did Jesus ask Peter three times, Peter, do you love me? Because that would be the only motive that would give Peter longevity and lastingness in the calling that God had given to him. I remember one time as a young man going through the seminary of the Holy Ghost. That means God is beating the daylights out of you, getting you ready for ministry, you know. And I remember one time going to visit the pastor that ordained me, that discipled me back in Rochester where we grew up. And I would go in after we moved down this way and when we'd visit, I'd go and I would just let him sit and he would just talk to me. He would just pour Jesus on me for an hour or two. And I remember at one particular season of my life, I was just rejoicing in, in, in what I got to do, that I got to be a teacher of the word. And I remember thinking to myself, God, I just love sharing the, the truths of your word. And it's so, it's so, it's such a high. I remember thinking those words to just teach the word, to, to do what you've called me to do. And I went in to my pastor's office on one occasion and I didn't share any of that with him. I hadn't talked to him in a long time. And he said to me, he said, Nick, And he looked right through me as though he could see right into my soul. And he said, Nick, if you have any other motive for what you do for Jesus, other than the fact that you love him, then you're going to burn out and your ministry won't bear lasting fruit. And then he said these words. He said, if you teach because of the high that you get because you're fulfilling your calling, you're going to burn out and it's not going to last. And I remember those words pierced me like an arrow and they've never left since. Because I was in danger during a certain part of that preparation of being subverted and letting my motives and reason be something other than the glory of God out of love for Jesus Christ. Thank God today I can say to you that he is the supreme motive behind what I do. I desire him. I desire him more than I desire a mansion in heaven. I desire Jesus more than I desire a crown, a city, a responsibility, whatever my inheritance is in heaven. I used to think... That we would be at that crown casting place where we, you know, sing holy, holy, holy. That that would be the requirement part of heaven, the church service. And that then we got to go and do all the other fun stuff. I no longer feel that way. I now could care less about anything else. And the thing that I want most and look forward to most about heaven is being in his presence. That is the treasure. That is what matters. That's what's valuable. And when a person comes to that realization... They're on the fast track to bearing good and lasting fruit within their life. Peter says, willingly and of a ready mind. It's out of love for God. That's the only lasting motive that will carry us through in our service for him in this life, no matter what it is. And so he speaks to them concerning this. And then he says concerning their reward in verse 4, And when the chief shepherd shall appear, you shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. The reward for service to the Lord, awaits us in heaven. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man, even our imagination, the things that God has prepared for those that what? That love Him. Love for Him will translate into obedience and service for Him, which will translate into a lasting reward in heaven. And so we serve him by faith, knowing that our benefits are future benefits, 
a crown of glory that fades not away. Then he talks to the younger in the body of Christ. He leaves off the elders. He turns his exhortation now to those that are newer believers. He says in verse 5, he says, likewise, you younger. Now, the likewise is attached to the fact that he's exhorting. So back in verse 1, he said, the elders I exhort, I come alongside to help. Now, likewise, now, you younger believers, I'm going to come alongside of you. And so Peter is drawing close now to every one of us that are not as mature as the pastor or the bishop or the elder, and he's going to give us some practical instruction and exhortation now. And he gives us four things. Number one, he says in verse 5, Submit yourselves unto the elder, yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud and gives grace unto the humble. And so the first thing that Peter says to the younger believers, he's not talking about, um, uh, you know, the younger people like kids, he's talking to people that are less mature in the faith, is he's saying, understand this law of submission and authority and how it works in the body of Christ. And he's saying, don't be afraid to fall into your place in line and to receive covering, encouragement, and instruction from those that are over you as you also grow in your influence for those that are rising up under you. Understand that it's like a conveyor belt. It isn't with God that he looks with favor upon those that are older. Well, they're better. No, 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 no. There's no better. We're all sheep. We're all equal. But we're all at different levels of maturity. And it's important that we understand that in order for us to have authority, we must be under authority. And so he says, don't be afraid of that. Embrace that. Enjoy that. Learn from it. Enjoy the covering of it because the day will come when you wish you had it and you don't. Just ask Isaiah, right? In the year that King Uzziah died, he realized, whoa, they're looking at me. There's no one else for me to say, no, it's him. And, and, and you, you want to be strengthened and prepared in that day. And so uh, understand and be in submission in this thing. Now, why is this so important to God? This whole concept of being under submission and authority. Why is it important? Two reasons. Number one is because God doesn't want lone ranger, rogue, self-professed apostle prophet Christians wreaking havoc and being a liability in his church. He doesn't like it when people go out and claim to be without human authority. Oh, I'm under God's authority and I don't need any human direction or any human accreditation or anything like that. No, no, no. We know that there's an unction and an anointing that comes from God. He still calls us to be in, in, in his church and a part of it in the whole thing. And so God doesn't want lone rangers that are a liability uh, to him in, in these things, rogue leaders in the whole thing, and, he, and, and also for our own protection and our safety. It's interesting to me, as we were studying King David on Saturday mornings, is that even after Saul was rejected by God, David knew it was still important for him to be in submission to Saul. He said, out of honor for God, it's important for me that I be in submission to Saul, even though he's been rejected. It's an important principle for us to grab a hold of. Uh, and, and, and the reason that Peter gives is because God exalts the humble. It's a humbling thing to be under submission or under someone's authority, but God exalts those that embrace that place. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Then in verse 7, the second word to the younger, he says, Casting all of your care or your anxieties upon him, for he cares for you. That is, that what we're to do with the things that are a source of anxiety for us is that we are to continually heave them off of our shoulders and onto the shoulders that can bear all things. You say, how do you do that? Because I know for me personally, when I'm anxious about something, it attaches itself to me like a burr. You know those things that when you're walking in the woods and you just can't get them off and then they're stuck to your fingers and then you try to wipe them off and they're stuck to your pants. And You know, the things that make us anxious are like that, aren't they? You know, so how do we do it? Paul the Apostle answers the questions in Philippians chapter four, verses six and seven. Listen to the words. Let them sink in because we all struggle here. He says, be anxious for nothing, 
But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ. And what you have in there is you have instruction, that is, this is how we cast our cares upon him, and they come in the form of a command with a conditional promise. What's the command? The command is that we are, when we're anxious about something, that we're to take that anxiety and we're to give it to God in prayer, making our requests known to him. That means that I verbally intentionally take the thing that's troubling me or bothering me and in specific verbal articulated prayer I bring it to God and I say Father in Jesus name you told me that I'm to take these things that are are, are anxieties to me and that I'm to bring them to you and so I'm doing that now and as I do that I am requesting that you remove this from my life or reveal the purpose for this thing in my life, or bring resolution and solution to it at some point in the future, or give me information, or do something. But that's my request that I am bringing to you in this thing. And, notice the word in verse 6, with thanksgiving, we have to do it. It's part of the command. Thank you for this trial. And this thing that I'm bearing up under in this difficulty, because I know, not I feel, but I know that you are good. And I know that the reason for this in my life and his presence in my life is because you're working something for my good. And so regardless of the outcome and what you do in it or how long it lasts, I thank you that you are in control as the shepherd and bishop of my soul. And I trust you in Jesus' name Amen. So now we've done what he has commanded us to do. Now there's a promise. And what's the promise? The promise is that when we do that, that the peace of God, what's the peace of God? Tranquility. It doesn't necessarily say that the resolution is going to come on the next day. It doesn't say that God is immediately going to swoop down on the wings of a cherubim and kill our enemy and deal with the issue or heal the disease or give us the job or pay the bill. It doesn't say that he's going to do any of that. What it does say that he'll do is that he'll bring the peace of God back into our heart. What is peace? Peace is is the opposite of anxiety. Meaning that he will give to us in our spirit an inward assurance that he has heard the request that we have brought to him. And that he'll replace the anxiety with the presence of his peace. That the peace of God, because of that, which passes understanding, meaning it doesn't make sense that I should feel peace right now because the problem didn't go away. But the peace that passes understanding will keep or guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. So you say, how often do I hurl this care and cast it off and unto him as often as it comes? You continually pray. And as we obey, it's amazing to me the people that, that bring me the, the, the burrs that they have on them. They say, look, I'm covered in them. And I'll say, did you pray? They, go, they, they, they start looking around the room, you know, like, I know I should pray more than I do. No, but did you pray? Have you really? Well, yeah, I pray. You know, I, I, I look up, you know, I, but did, did you, listen, did you specifically articulate prayer concerning this thing because God's condition he says pray with thanksgiving and I'll give you peace that's what it means to cast our care and Peter says understand you're going to go through difficult things burrs are going to attach themselves to you this is the godly and proper way to handle it cast your care upon him because he cares for you the third instruction in verse 80 says be sober be vigilant because your adversary the devil as a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour. The third word of instruction is to understand that this world is not our home and that we have an enemy of our faith in this world who walks about and who takes good notes and who would seek to devour or pour out, literally is the word, our lives and to make them a total waste. As you grow in your relationship with God and you walk on this narrow way and and work your way closer to heaven, as you walk with him, 
you will see, as you probably already have, the corpses strewn along the wayside of those that have been shipwrecked in their walk. They've been destroyed. And the reason why many times that happens is because they have left off to be sober and vigilant and understand that there is an adversary that is seeking to subvert. And we must be aware and understand that if we take our eyes off the prize and if our feet wander out of the way of understanding, we have left the path of safety. We must walk the walk that he has called us to walk. And Peter bids us unto that vigilant, sober walk. Whom resists steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. Understand that when you're being tempted with something, whether it's a temptation to wander or a temptation to sin, that you're not alone in that temptation. That Satan's playbook is as old as time itself. And anytime you're facing a particular temptation, understand that that same temptation is being worked out in your brethren around the world as well as just in you. We never hear about one uh, marriage conflict here. It's never whether there's one phone call and it's like, hey, I'm struggling with my marriage. We get 10 marriage phone calls in the same week. We never in the church get, get one call that this, someone's addicted to something. It's 10 at the same time. Affairs, adulteries, 10 at the same time. People struggling with depression, it's 10 at the same time. Because Satan works like that. It's like he brings waves. And sometimes just to know that, to understand it, that if you're going through something, understand you're not alone in going through that thing. It'll teach you to pray, but it'll also give you courage and strength to endure. Like, listen, I don't want to hear that everybody else is falling under the weight of this thing. I want to endure in this thing. When I run with my kids, you know, it used to be, it used to be that they had to keep up with me. Now it's the other way around. And I can't keep up with them. They have all surpassed my ability. I can't keep up with them any longer. And sometimes when, when, I'm, when I'm running with them, I'm tempted to let them pull ahead. But then I think, nah, I can't. <laughs> and it's the same kind of idea is that we're running this race together. And sometimes we can be tempted. You know what? I'll indulge a little. I'll give in to the flesh. Don't do it. Listen, run arm in arm, shoulder to shoulder. We're all in this thing together, he says. And then he says this in verse 10. He gives the hope. I love the hope. Here it is. He says, but the God of all grace, who has called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that you have suffered a while, will make you perfect, establish, strengthen, and settled. That's one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. And it's the capstone on Peter's letter concerning suffering. He's written a whole letter to us concerning suffering. And after giving us all of the reasons why we suffer, all of the things that God is doing us in us through the sufferings, all of the benefits of it, he finishes off at the high point of hope here by saying, listen, that suffering that you go through and will go through is not forever is that it's going to come to a point where the suffering is ended. And when you stand on the other side of that suffering, you're going to have three things that you can say about your life. First of all, you're going to be able to say that you are complete. That's what it means when it says perfect there. None of us, listen, you're not going to be perfect on this side of heaven. Sorry, you know, it, it doesn't happen. We'll be perfected when we're there, but you will be complete. And he will use the sufferings in your life to bring you to the place of completion where you look like Christ or at least something like him. You will be established. Do you know what established means? It means that your feet are set in a solid place. How many of you, don't raise your hands, but how many of you here tonight just feel like your life is so unstable? That you're just on ground that's constantly moving. and every, It's like you're, you, you feel like more like you're in water than that your feet are on solid ground. And it's like you're just constantly swerving, trying to get the next breath, hoping that the next wave doesn't plow you under. Listen, there's a promise from God here is that not only does God have you in his hand in the middle of that sea, but there's a day coming when your feet are going to stand on solid ground and you're going to be established in the purpose and the plan that God has for your life. That's a promise. And then number three is that you will be then settled there. And the idea behind settled is that there will be rest. Is that God is going to bring you into a place where you can look at your Christian experience and you say, like David did, I have been young and now I am old. 
And I have never seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging for bread. And as I have heard with my ears, so have I also seen with my eyes, God, that you are the faithful God that brings to pass every word that you said. That this God is our God and will be with us and will be our guide even unto death. You'll be able to echo that sentiment in that word. That there's an end to the sufferings that we're going through and the end is settled. And then he closes by saying, To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And so he finishes words now to the younger and he closes his address. By Silvanus, that is, Silvanus was the scribe as Peter spoke these things, a faithful brother unto you as I suppose. He says, I have written briefly, exhorting and testifying, and listen, this is the seal, that this is the true grace of God. What is the true grace of God? The sufferings, God's work in our lives through the sufferings, and God's resolution to the sufferings that we go through in our life. Peter says, this is the grace of God. You say, the sufferings in my life are God's grace in my life? Yeah. They are. When Adam fell in the Garden of Eden, God looked at Adam with tenderness in his eyes. And he said, Adam, because you have done this, cursed is the ground for your sake. In other words, the toil... The sweat, the labor, the trials, the thorns, those things are your safety now. If you had Eden in your fallen condition, you would destroy your life. And the very presence of the trials that are going to come to you now because of this are my grace and the sufficiency of my grace. For every trial that you and I go through as we walk from here to heaven, If we persist in that trial and come to the other side of it, we will look at that trial and what it produced in our lives and what it saved us from had we not gone through that trial. And we will look at it and we'll look at God and we will say, God, that trial was grace. Thank you for that trial in my life. I didn't know I needed it, but I'm so thankful for it. This is the true grace of God. You and I have no idea what we're being protected from and what's being added to us through the trials that we go through. But Peter says it's more precious than gold. Gold that perishes, though it's refined by fire. This is the true grace of God wherein you stand. The church that is in Babylon, elected together with you, salutes you. And so does Marcus, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of charity. Peace. Be with you all that are in Christ Jesus. Amen. The same benediction of peace that Jesus gave in his departure. He said, my peace I give you, my peace I leave you. Peter now, in signing off to this group that he writes to, this group that's going through trials, he says, peace be with you now. And my benediction to you at the close of the epistle, regardless of the trials that you and I are facing, regardless of the difficulties the insecurities, the unsurety of the outcomes, the peace of God be upon us as we learn to cast our cares upon Him because He cares for us. Amen? Shall we pray together? Father, we thank You tonight for Your Word. We thank You, Lord, for the authority. We thank You for Your presence that comes in to our hearts and into the room as we just study and look at these truths. It becomes very clearly evident to us, Lord, as we study and as we search. God, that your word is so very true. And even now, Lord, as we sit on the other side of hearing the study and the words of Peter that were written so long ago, and having your spirit have spoken so many things to our hearts, oh Lord, there's a comfort and an assurance that we have in knowing that you're in control of all things. Your word says that you are the everlasting God and that underneath of that are the everlasting arms 
And your word says that you keep us as the apple of your eye and that we're upheld by the palm of your hand. And so tonight, Father, wherever we're at, whatever our need is, whether we're the elder or the younger, wherever we fall in that spectrum of Christendom, we desire tonight, O Lord, to commit our lives afresh to you. We believe in you. We profess faith in your person. We declare our love to you. We're grateful for your salvation in the person of your son, Jesus. We're thankful for everything that you're doing in our lives right now, for everything you've done and everything that's yet to be. And we declare, O God, before you that we trust you. We trust you with our lives, with everything that we are. And we thank you, Lord, for the grace of God that's been manifested through the blood of Christ that is to us, O Lord, our righteousness and our access and our hope and our success and victory. So, Father, please, Father, please have your way in every one of our lives. We thank you for your word tonight. We thank you for its power and for what it does. And we ask you, Lord, to take and seal it now. In Jesus' name.